Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com I'm standing in the old Croton Aqueduct, uh, the passageway from which water arrived in New York City in 1842. I'm Michael Rollman. This is From Scratch. This episode is water. Welcome to From Scratch. My name is Michael Rollman, and I've spent the last 20 years in professional kitchens writing about and with the world's best chefs. From Scratch is a podcast about cooking. In each episode, we'll talk with one chef and one non-chef about the same theme. The great thing about the cooking life is that you never stop learning. In this show, I want to go to the edges of what I know and then go beyond, together with you, with all chefs, home cooks, and everyone who cares about food and cooking. Water is perhaps the most powerful yet unrecognized ingredient and tool in your kitchen. Water does far more than we realize, and how it gets to our tap, I find a marvel. In this episode, we'll talk with an expert who knows every detail of New York City's water supply, from raindrop to your faucet. He'll share the surprising details of the gigantic, silent service that is our water supply. We'll also go inside an aqueduct that was built in the 1830s before most modern construction machinery was available, to learn how the delivery of water to New York City in 1842 transformed a fetid, filthy, disease-ridden city prone to devastating fires into a safe and thriving metropolis. But first, we spoke with one of the most well-respected chefs in the world, Jean-Georges von Gerichten. 
we spoke with him about his career and his feelings about my second favorite ingredient in the kitchen, water. Jean-Georges is like no other chef I've worked with. He has seemingly endless energy. His creativity is ceaseless. New ideas come flying out of his brain faster than I could write them down. And in business, he's all but unmatched. JG, or Jojo as he's sometimes called, has created a fleet of shining restaurants on nearly every continent, dozens of them. Here in New York City, if you're a chef who came out of one of his kitchens, you will be perceived as a badass unless you prove otherwise. JG is, in short, a culinary and business dynamo and the consummate host. And I feel really lucky to be here with him. by your history and fascinated, especially by one specific part of your history. And that's when you moved from uh, a traditional kitchen. You did a traditional apprenticeship at Auberge de Lille in Alsace with uh, Chef Paul Heberlin. Paul Heberlin. I learned everything about Alsatian food and local food, you know. Right. Now, uh, tell us what that kitchen was like. I mean, the kitchen was really, uh, you know, at the time, you know, they were not shipping uh, fish from any place else. And Alsace is in the middle of uh, between Germany and France. And, uh, so all the fish were freshwater fish. I mean, you had frogs to uh, eel, mm-hmm. freshwater eel, trout. Before the days of daily fresh fish deliveries, classic French restaurants in Alsace relied on freshwater fish, carp, pike, crayfish, eel, and trout. The trout, though, had to be delivered alive and swam in a little pond behind the restaurant. The dish he was responsible for was the famous tweet au bleu, named for the vivid color the trout becomes when dipped in vinegar. Its slimy film coating changes color when it hits the vinegar, but it only works if the fish have just been killed. Uh, describe what you had to do for trout au bleu. Trout au bleu had to run, as soon as the other come in, had to run out, get the, the fish net, Mm-hmm. Going to the pond, there was a little pond just for trouts, wild trout that the fishermen were bought uh, every day. We, uh, we got about 15, 20 trouts. Fish out of trout, jumping around in my net. I had to grab it with a towel because you, c- you can use your hand because there's a kind of a slime on the right. trout. Which you want. Which you want, you want to remove it. So uh, I had to take it with a little towel on, um, with a wooden spatula behind the neck. <laughs> <laughs> done then uh, you have to empty it you know uh-huh. empty the, the guts and uh, take the gills out then I had to run upstairs the chef de partie had, had the courbouillon ready the water with uh, uh, the aromats you know there was carrots and onions and shallots uh, garlic mm-hmm. uh, some bay leaves some thyme and then uh, I had to toss the the trout in uh, vinegar local vinegar you know the honey honey herb vinegar mm-hmm. it's called Melfort mm-hmm. Toss the trout in, trout in there and then plunge it in there. Cover it right away because uh, it was still, uh, you know, it's, it depends you, how much I was not in the still head. Sort of dead. It's still moving around. <laughs> still moving around. So uh-huh. the water was splashing out. So, and I was pushing. So the, we removed from, uh, from the stove. So it was boiling. Trout in there. Cover. Mm-hmm. Remove it. Push it for like 12 minutes. And it uh, turns what color? And it turns like bright blue, like a blue, uh, like... You never see anything right. like this. You know, the vinegar on the, that uh, slime on the trout. So when, when that order came in, did you say, oh, oh my God, I run out. But on that's nice in the spring and summer, but you have to run in the snow <laughs> in the winter. An important step in Jean-Georges' evolution as a chef came when he first showed up at a kitchen, which broke many of the rules of the more classic traditions. So tell me about the difference between Louis Outier's kitchen at Loasis and 
I mean, it was totally different. It was like uh, I arrive, uh, I arrive with my deux chevaux, my Citroën, in front of the restaurant. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. I drove all night. I arrive and there was a couple of cooks opening scallops, some people peeling uh, vegetables. And there was nothing on the stove. I said, oh, they probably closed for lunch. You know, it was like 10, 10.30. I said, so they tell me where to change. I can come with my, my knives on the apron. They give me a jacket on the... When I came to the kitchen, it's still, still everybody's prepping, but it's still nothing on the stove. Now it's like 11.15. It's like, I say, oh, you ask the young commie next to me. I say, it's close for lunch. What time is dinner starts? He said, no, no, we open at uh, 12 o'clock. Today we have uh, 80 people for lunch. I say, where is everything? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so there was a, a culture shock because um, I had Berlin, you know, we started everything. The whole stove was uh, filled in the morning uh, with like stock and things roasting, uh, you know. And, uh, so there was like a... Anti uh, mise en place. An anti mise en place. <laughs> you know, so uh, it was all about opening scallop and uh, you know everything was cut on every herb, every. You couldn't, you couldn't. Nothing. Chop parsley unless nothing. Until the yeah. cast order. You had a bouquet of herbs on every session. You had, uh, you know, even the the fish was cut. You know, was filleted but not uh, not uh, portioned. Chef von Gerichten has been an innovator of lighter cooking for many years. As far back as his days as executive chef of Lafayette in the 1980s, he noticed New Yorkers wanted less butter and cream. And so he created a new kind of French menu reliant on vegetable juices, vinaigrettes, and broths. And, of course, water, which he found, at Loasis, was considerably important, as its chef did not rely on veal stock and demi-glass, which can take days to make and which was ubiquitous at the time in fine dining restaurants. Why is the water important? Why not veal stock? I mean, he didn't believe that. He didn't want that uh, sticky flavor of, uh, you know, it's sort of France, so you don't need as much uh, calorie. Right. It's warm you want it lighter. You want, f- you want lighter. lighter on the you really taste the, the squab, roast juice, pan juices instead of uh, a stock, mm-hmm. which we had. We never had a piece of braised meat on the menu. Versus Hebelin, mm. we had a lamb shank, veal shank, uh, right. you know, different parts of the animal uh, braised, with, you know, cold weather. Mm-hmm. You, know, you want a healthier food, things will mm. stick to your, to your guts. On the side of France, it was all about lightness. Mm. And, um, you know. From Uthier, JG went to the father of modern French cuisine and perhaps the man who turned chefs into celebrities, Paul Bocuse in Lyon, France. Yet Bocuse by then had his signatures, the truffle consomme and the chicken en vessie, chicken stuffed in a bladder. But there he learned new skills before being lured to aubergine and the youngest three-star chef ever, Eckhart Witzigmann at aubergine in Germany, where he learned a whole new form of au minute cooking. Witzigmann wouldn't post a menu for the night's 100 covers until late afternoon. And then you get a call from your old mentor, Louis Outhier. Then I got a call from uh, Louis Outhier. On, uh, he called me for three months to try to convince me at 23 years old to take over the... He became consulting for the Oriental Hotel in Bangkok at the Normandy Grill. It was Normandy Grill, then he changed it to Normandy. He's going to be the chef there, cooking his food. On, uh, I said, Monsieur Outhier, I can't. I've never been a sous-chef, I've never been a chef. How do you want me to run a restaurant? I can't. So, and then, uh, thinking about it, Thailand, exotic, I don't know, I read about it, but then never, I don't know. Yeah, it was before the I internet, never, you I couldn't, I yeah. couldn't talk to anybody. I never heard about anybody who went there in right. 1980. You know, I don't, so why'd you say yes? But then uh, one, one, one night I said, you know what, 
maybe one too many beers uh, <laughs> with a cart uh, after work. On the next morning, I wake up, I say, what? I should have, if I fell over there, what's, what's going to happen to me? Right. I come back. Right. You know, I come back. Uh, I've been now in the kitchen for seven years. I know a little bit of how, uh, mm-hmm. how to go around. I'm always going to get a job, so I don't pack my suitcase. Let's go. Let's do it. After six months of training and preparing the menu, Jean-Georges took the first long-distance flight of his life. Tell me about your arrival in Bangkok in that day, because we're going to get to... Yeah, so uh, I arrived in Bangkok uh, early December, 1980. And it was like, you know, I landed at the time, you know, it was like uh, I flew uh, Thai Airways, so mm-hmm. I got a little sense of, uh, yeah. you know, of, uh, <laughs> you know, the hospitality that they, they do mm-hmm. there. You know, everybody was so nice on the plane. I was like, wow. It's a bit different than uh, Air France or any other <laughs> company I've been on. I haven't flew that much, you know. That was my probably my my third flight mm-hmm. in my life. At 23, you know, at the time, you know, you know I was driving everywhere. So uh, I took a flight once uh, to London, once uh, to Spain, but I never flew that far away, you know. Mm-hmm. The longest flight I took was probably, you know, two and a half hours. Right. So this was my third flight. You're on the other side of the world. Twelve hours. With a stop in uh, was a stop in Karachi, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So the, at the time the, fl- the plane was not flying uh, uh, more than uh, ten hours, so there was a twelve-hour flight. So we stopped an hour in Karachi. Look aside, we'll see what's going on. <laughs> we stay on the plane. It was just a refuel, mm-hmm. and then we arrived in Bangkok. Uh, it was a, you know, at the time when they opened the door, there was no. There was no tunnel. No jetway. You had to walk down the, the stairs. Staircase. And when the door opened up, I was like, I could smell. I was like, wow, this is different. This is like a... What did you smell? A different... I don't know. It was like a mix of durian, lemongrass, uh, fish sauce. Fish sauce uh, Jungle. A little pollution, a little mm. coconut, a little, uh, <laughs> a little bit of everything, you know? Yeah. So it was a blend of uh, all those... I was like, wow. This is... Um, I bought it in Paris, you know, Parisian smell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you arrive here and it's like a whole totally different uh, aroma in, uh, in the air already mm-hmm. so I was like wow that's like an adventure so I was ready for the adventure mm-hmm. so went out of the of the airport and I took a, a cab to go to the hotel mm-hmm. you know they give me the address mm-hmm. you know I was you know at the time I was you know nobody was calling for there was no Uber <laughs> nobody was calling for a car for me it was um, kind of a you know I was jumping a cab and it was uh, it was so hot I mean, it was like 92 degrees yeah. You know, it's very hot in Thailand, so right away you get off that plane, you're like, whoa. Mm-hmm. It's like a, you know, a wall of heat, and then um, in a cab, no air condition, mm-hmm. window open. Mm-hmm. On a, it was amazing. It was like elephant on the road. There was like a chicken running everywhere. There was, a, you know, people on horses, people on, a, on tuk-tuk, you know, there's a three-wheel. Uh, uh, I was like, oh my God, it's like, a, you know, I was arriving to a, like a mm. palm tree. I mean, it was a... You know, with the heat and everything. And uh, at the time, was a, a highway it was like four lane going to the city, but it was no, not much traffic. You know, the, when I arrived in Bangkok in 1980, it was maybe three, four hotels. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, main hotel was a the Oriental Hotel. There was a Lusitani, a local hotel, and then there was an Intercontinental. There was no. Was the only the Oriental was the only hotel at the, on the river. Mm-hmm. On you know, I saw all those mar- merchants, markets. I mean, the, the life is uh, in the street. Right. You know, the, right. So from the airport to the hotel, it was a, probably a, an hour drive. I stopped three times. I had to stop three Tell times. me about the first time you stopped. You so told the driver to pull over. I said, pull over. I, uh, I need to see the city. So I walk around, you know, I say, I'm not going to, you know, 
on before you know no cell phone so there's no mm -hmm. picture there's no you know just memory so and I said I need to stop so uh, I was hungry so I got some mango and I got uh, this woman who did uh, put a soup together tell me about the soup I ask her nobody speaks English so the driver the taxi driver just speaks English I say what is this I say Tom Yam Kung I say alright so she puts a pot Couple of cups of water, lemongrass. From a dirty jerry can, you say? I, know, I mean, the water was not clear. Trust me. <laughs> it wasn't clear. <laughs> it wasn't clear. But, uh, so I was a little shocked by that. But then um, she put a Thai chili in there. She put some lemongrass, lime leaf. Let it but you didn't know what these things were. I had no idea. Yeah. I smelled everything. I had no idea. And it was a, well, trust me, it was a, it was a limit uh, sanitation. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it wouldn't, wouldn't get approved. It wouldn't get an A. <laughs> but uh, you got an A for flavor. Uh -huh. On uh, so they, she put all that together and then simmer it for like eight ten minutes. Just water, fish sauce, water. lime. But the fragrance coming out of that uh, lime leaf on lemongrass on the. Then she throw some mushroom in there. Then she she put shrimp in there. Shrimp uh, unpeeled, mm -hmm. on not even nothing, just huh. shrimp in there. And then she squeezes in some lime. You know, I like the way they cut the limes. You know, they they don't cut it in half like a lemon because mm -hmm. you don't get the, the much juice. You've got that core in there. The tree, you cut the tree yeah. in three. Uh, That's where you learn angles. That. Yeah. Huh? yeah, that woman on uh, fish sauce. Which I had no idea what it was. Mm -hmm. You know, I had soy sauce once in uh, in Alsace. To you know, I saw in a, I bought in a package in a supermarket, but mm. I never had Asian food in my life. On uh, on she finished with the fish sauce and uh, she mm -hmm. was testing it. On, uh, I got a bowl, I bought, I bought a bowl for the, you know, it was probably like 50 cents. Four shrimp, beautiful broth. She gave you a little bowl of rice on the side. It was the best, uh, I said, I arrived in paradise. <laughs> it was like, wow. Another, another water stock, but with a flavor of fragrance I never had before. Yeah. Life, you know? So it was a whole, uh, it was a culture shock. It was like, my God, for, mm -hmm. from that dirty water, she made something amazing. Yeah. Amazing, you know. On, uh, I, and I so love, it uh, got stuck in my, my head forever, and um, I, I could, uh, I could redo the movie step by step the way she she did everything. You know, and it was awesome. When it was so hot, I was like sweating under my eyes. <laughs> you know, the cab driver was like eating it like it's a uh, you know, whatever it is. You know, like uh, something like porridge. I was drinking mm -hmm. like uh, every spoon was like so hot and so. But it cooled me down somehow. Uh -huh. You know, then I uh, went back to the camp, continued my my journey on. I'd stop a couple more times for fruits, for other things. Right. On uh, then I arrived at the hotel. You would basically take the, that 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 powerful arrival in Bangkok, and it would transform you as a chef in your career in New York City, yeah. and Absolutely. it would really help guide you. It put me to a different direction in my life. You know, that's one of the I think one of the twelve recipe mm -hmm. steps yes, that uh, changed my life. So I think you really. You know, it was really uh, a transformation for me. Mm -hmm. You know, to say, oh my God, um, this is like, a, I'm going to learn so much in this country. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to show them what I know. And then uh, I'm going to learn, absorb uh, whatever Thailand has to, has to give me. And people are going to have to read how you did that in your <laughs> new memoir, JGV. Absolutely. A recipe, uh, Life in 12 Recipes. Yes, and yeah. it's an adventurous book. Later on, Jean-Georges will cook us Tom Young Kung and demonstrate the power of water in cooking, a la minute. But before that, we're going to find out precisely how Jean-Georges, his fellow chefs, and everyone in New York City gets their water.
This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com you deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Adam Bosch is the Director of Public Affairs for New York City's Department of Environmental Protection. And if that sounds like a made-up job title, it might be because Adam created it himself. But this wasn't to pull one over on the Department of Environmental Protection. They're actually lucky to have someone as passionate and articulate as Adam is in this role. He's taken it upon himself to become the leading expert for all things New York City water, from the historical dilemmas to the problems of the future, from the folklore to the scientific, to his own chicken soup. But as a curious home cook, I had to first know, where exactly does the water from my tap come from? The water that comes to your apartment in Manhattan will have started as a raindrop or a snowflake uh, coming out of the sky, landing somewhere in the Catskills. And when it makes its way down a hill or melts, it will go into uh, one of the streams, rivers, and creeks that feeds our reservoirs. If you were to look at the farthest drop of water away in the farthest reservoir away, it could take as much as two years to get to the city. Okay, hmm. has to get all the way across the reservoir. 
it eventually gets into a, a tunnel or an aqueduct that feeds what we like to call one of our terminal reservoirs. Our terminal reservoirs are reservoirs that under certain operational configurations of the system can send water directly into the city. Okay, um, From the Catskills, it's going to go through one of, one of two aqueducts. It's either going to go through the Catskill Aqueduct, which is a 92-mile aqueduct. The original aqueduct that was built in the Catskills delivers water from a Shokin Reservoir all the way to the uh, Hillview Reservoir, which is in Yonkers, right on the northern border of the Bronx, or it's going to go through the Delaware Aqueduct, which is an 85-mile-long tunnel. It is the longest tunnel in the world. Uh, hmm. delivers water from Rondout Reservoir to Hillview Reservoir, which is the start of New York City's distribution system, where there will go into one of three large tunnels that deliver water into the city, up into what we call trunk mains, which are the larger mains, into mains in the street. There are about 7,000 miles of water mains under the streets of New York City, and then eventually into your home, where you'll be able to use it for all the things you use water for, whether that's flushing, washing, making coffee, or even cooking. One reason that Bosch may be able to quote so many details is that he worked as a reporter and taught journalism for 10 years before his current role working for New York City. In fact, it was while reporting on a lethally boring city government meeting that he accidentally discovered the critical nature of water for growing communities. And early on in my journalism career, this was hammered home to me. I covered uh, some very small communities in the Hudson Valley, and there was one community that was very popular, and projects wanted to come there. And I remember sitting at a planning board meeting, which is sort of like you know the doldrums of covering local government, <laughs> but you have to do it. And I remember there was this great company that wanted to bring 100 jobs to this small community in Orange County, and the project was turned down. And the project was turned down because that community happened to sit over top of a very small aquifer, an underground pocket of water that was essentially tapped out. And they didn't have any more water left to support growth of that community. Mm. And it was just an early reminder, at least in my career, that you can survive or thrive without a source of water. Let's go back to the early days of New York City. Describe the situation. Where were people getting their water? What was it like? What were the problems? Sure. So the earliest days of New York City, if you go back to the 1700s and the early 1800s, New York City was really just Manhattan Island below 14th Street. And there were about, up until the early 1800s, about 200 to 300,000 people living there at the peak. And they were getting their water from what we would consider to be very primitive means. So we're talking about things like ponds and open pits and shallow primitive wells. And that worked okay for a period of time until the early 1800s when those sources became contaminated. And they were contaminated not only by human waste, but you got to remember there were also a lot of animals on Manhattan Island at this time. There were a lot of barnyards and things like that. And uh, that small water supply, that those small sources of water um, led to three big problems. One problem was disease. So that contaminated water was leading to outbreaks of things like cholera and yellow fever, and that was killing hundreds or thousands of people a year. The second big problem was fire. So they didn't have pressurized firefighting the way we think of it today. All they had were bucket brigades, where if there was a fire, and there were many of them, some guy would run to the local contaminated pond, scoop up some water in a bucket, pass it on down the line until the next guy was staring at a fire that was gobbling up 
multiple city blocks and just sort of go wee and toss the bucket <laughs> of water onto the fire. And as you can imagine, that was not very effective. And the ineffectiveness of that method was highlighted during something called the Great Fire of 1835, which gobbled up uh, something like 30 entire city blocks in one fire. Um, the last problem was just general filth. There are some really great newspaper editorials from back in that time that describe New York City as having filth that was ankle deep in the consistency of bean soup. Mm. And one of my favorites said that if you wanted to cross Broadway, you had to have the bravery of a desperado because the filth was just so gross and deep. Um, so it was really with that in mind, disease, fire, and filth, that the leaders of New York City said, if we're going to be able to, once again, survive and thrive, we really have to go somewhere and look for a source of fresh water that can be tapped and brought into the city to sustain this population, not only the population they had, but the population they hoped to have as the city grew. And it was during that time that they, they looked just north of the city, uh, here to where we're sitting now in Westchester County, and they decided to develop what's known now as the Croton system the very first parts of the Croton system. So in the 1830s, they set out on an ambitious plan to build a single reservoir, a Croton Reservoir, and a single brick line tunnel that would deliver water from the Croton River into Manhattan. But that original system had a brick-lined aqueduct that changed in elevation 13 and a half inches per mile. So you think about that. That's very precise construction, mm. right, to maintain the flow of water by gravity alone to the city. And gravity alone. We had to see this. We'll hear more from Adam in a bit. But first, we wanted to head to the source and go inside the old Croton Aqueduct. And Sarah Kelsey was the perfect person to show us. I'm Sarah Kelsey. I am co-head of Walks and Tours for the Friends of the Old Croton Aqueduct. The, the sound here. Yeah. Isn't it great? Yeah. Almost makes you and want to sing. <laughs> you got any you should use, if you have any voice at all, you should sing a little something. Someday, when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. <laughs> <laughs> What's your fascination with uh, aqueduct? Well, for me, it's a combination of things. That's one thing that's great about the aqueduct is there are a whole range of interests that can be satisfied. So for me, I love history. I love the history of New York City, especially in the Hudson River Valley. Uh, but in addition to that, I love engineering. I love to know how things work. And it's really interesting to find out how this was built, how it works, and realize that the entire very large water system that New York City has now is built on exactly the same principles. An engineer named David Douglas was the first man on the job. The contours of the land and how it should go. He came up with it should be gravity-fed. So that was the first guy, David Douglas. He um, was the one who said, David Douglas said, we're going to let gravity do the work and pull this water down. And then, and then they fired him. Because he was a slowpoke. Because 
They thought he was moving too slow while he was doing all of this, and it involved a lot of surveying. And of course, nobody gave him enough staff. It's always the way. Right. But there was a major um, epidemic, and then in 1835, there was a major fire that you know eliminated a large proportion of New York City. And so they said, that's it, time's up. We need water. We need pressurized water. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so then they hired John Jarvis. John Jarvis succeeded in setting up the Crodden Aqueduct System that began the succession of clean water that hasn't stopped flowing into New York City since it was turned on in 1842. And along the way, on his original aqueduct, there were structures called weirs. And that's what Sarah took us inside of. It's a big brick square structure with a door that opens to the top of a staircase. And the purpose of the weir is basically to dam up the old Croton Aqueduct Tunnel so that they could stop the water from going in south of here and do repairs if they needed to do repairs. Also at the top of that staircase is a giant black piece of iron. It's probably more than 10 feet tall and 8 feet wide. What does this remind you of? It's like a guillotine. (laughs) It's like a gigantic guillotine. Yeah, and they lowered it by pulleys. It was all done by hand, no machines involved. They lowered it down until it covered the face of the tunnel. Then the water was diverted across here, through here, and you, yeah, can, you, can still, you can still use this gear. It's, it's still workable. And so wow. I say to people, children and people with an inner child can now work the gear. <laughs> Everybody rushes to work the gear. That wheel would divert incoming water to the nearby Hudson River when they needed to make repairs inside the tunnel. And the men making those emergency repairs? They were called the keepers. There were six keepers who lived in houses along the aqueduct, always ready to repair any leaks as they occurred. The friends of the old Crotton Aqueduct have recently refurbished a keeper's house, which now serves as a permanent exhibit for the history of the Crotton water system. They had about six keepers' houses along the trail, and they were the people that maintained and kept in working order the aqueduct tunnel. So if there was a leak, that guy had to figure out how to fix it. Um, and they had all sorts of ways to fix it. They had, they had entryways in those conical um, structures that are called ventilators. They had iron plates and brick openings along the way that nobody notices as they're walking down the trail. They had a number of different strategies to get in as close as they could, and then they had um, weirs like this along the way so they could isolate the part they needed to work in and get it dry fast. Because New York City was so dependent on this water that if there was a little leak and they had to close it down to repair the leak, the water was being so consumed so rapidly in New York City that the reservoirs would be going down, down, Mm -hmm. down down while they're busily trying to repair the leak. Then they repair the leak, be able to start the water again, and then raise up those reservoirs in New York City. So it was very dramatic. You could actually see the water disappearing while they were doing repairs. In the reservoir? Yeah, in the reservoirs in New York City. Yeah. 
Yeah, what happened originally is when they first built this old Croton Aqueduct, they thought it would be enough water for New York City for a hundred years. But no way, because New York City completely changed all of its habits. Partly because it could, because of the water. Yeah, because it could. It was an interaction. You can see still in the tunnel the water line for how high the water got, which was way higher than it was built for. Um, the way a, a round tunnel like this works, it's sort of a horseshoe shape, and the part that's perpendicular to the ground, that's very strong. Once you get into the arch, it's a lot weaker. You can see that it started getting into the arch. Mm-hmm. So the original builder, engineer of this was jumping up and down saying, this wasn't built for this amount of water. You have to build more aqueduct. So they did. So- While the Croton system was deemed insufficient after only 20 years, the current day system that provides water to millions uses the same principles of the old Croton aqueduct. It was an engineering feat unlike anything that had ever been accomplished in America. And um, there were a lot of engineers who turned it down. They didn't think it, it, it could work. And in fact, the first dam they tried to build failed. Um, so it wasn't without hardship. But ultimately, they built something that is widely recognized as a marvel of modern engineering. And so is the system we have now as they expanded sort of the concepts that Uh, led to it being labeled a marvel of modern engineering, extend throughout the modern-day system as it grows and grows. Okay, so you've got a great system that just works. But what do those responsible for the water supply do to keep busy? Well, first, changing valves. We're at a point now where almost every single part of the water supply is at 100 years old or more than 100 years old. So we're in a cycle now where we're doing a lot of very large projects just to give everything some 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 TLC, some rehabilitation. So over the next, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, you know, New Yorkers won't see a difference, but just know that we up here are doing a lot of very big projects to make sure that the dams, aqueducts, all All the the infrastructure, infrastructure, exactly, is in a state of good repair. And that includes things that seem kind of mundane, like if a valve's been in the same place for 100 years, it might not turn the same way it did back in 1919, (laughs) you know? So we got to go in and swap these valves out. But each of these valves is like as big as a school bus, you know? They're huge. So uh, (laughs) they're really big, complex projects. And What happens to New York City water uh, in the treatment stage? Sure. So New York City's drinking water is by and large treated by just two things. Um, One is chlorine. And one is ultraviolet light. Just a quick note here. Chlorine is one of those special chemicals that's either helpful or poisonous, depending on the dose. Cooks know this to be true for bleach. They measure a bleach and water solution with precise ratios, which serves as a sanitary solution for cleaning cutting boards and other equipment. I mean, the chlorination of, of drinking water is considered one of the great advances in protecting public health in the history of mankind. Uh, Once again, the idea is being able to knock out uh, and disinfect the water for those little microorganisms that can cause you a stomach illness. So we're talking about things like Giardia and Cryptosporidium and these little tiny microorganisms that are just naturally occurring in water and you have to make sure that they're, they're knocked out. 
One of the te great technological advancements is the use of ultraviolet light. I haven't heard of that. Yeah, ultraviolet light is really effective at disinfecting water for these little microorganisms, and I'll explain sort of what it does. Um, ultraviolet light in a very specific wavelength can actually genetically neuter these little microorganisms so that they cannot reproduce. Really? And the way it works is this. Cells can only replicate when the t double helix in the DNA splits, binds with new bases and proteins, and that's how cells replicate. Well, what UV light does in this very narrow wavelength is it takes two of those bases in the genetic code of these microorganisms, and it glues them together. It is essentially like genetic superglue. And if those two bases are stuck together, the double helix can't split. And if the double helix can't split, the cells can't replicate. And if the cells can't replicate, they can't get you sick. So this was discovered in the 1990s in scientifically, but it has probably been at work in water supplies going back to the great ancient civilizations because their aqueducts, when you go back to uh, great civilizations in the Middle East or even in Rome, their aqueducts were open to the sunlight and they were open air aqueducts, not underground aqueducts. And when the sun shines on water, it produces many spectrums of, of light, but it does produce this narrow spectrum of UV light that is effective at disinfecting the water. Okay. So we are taking that process and essentially we've put it in a gigantic canisters with very, very bright light bulbs and computer systems and workers that can monitor to make sure it's in that very specific wavelength. We think of it as a treatment dose, but it's really a wavelength to knock these microorganisms out. And the great news is because we have UV light, we're now able to use less chlorine. So we're adding less chemical treatment to the water and doing it with ultraviolet light instead, and it's equally effective. Wow. When did yep. that start happening? Uh, so the UV plant that treats New York City's drinking water was turned on in 2012. In fact, it was turned on about a month or a month and a half before Hurricane Sandy oh, hit, really? hit New York. Um, and it is the largest ultraviolet facility in the world, and it is larger than all the other ultraviolet facilities in America combined. It is a massive facility. Huh. Um, there are more than 11,700 light bulbs in it. Each light bulb is as long as you and I are tall. So they are very, very large, very bright, and uh, they do a great job at disinfecting New York City's water so that we know we're delivering water that is safe and wholesome to our consumers. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know about that. Has this been written about? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another surprising program that helps with water quality, farming consultation and improvements. The first thing is uh, our partners from this nonprofit, which is 100% run by farmers, and we should mention all of this is voluntary. Uh, will go to the local farm and they will sit down with the farmer and understand fully how that farmer operates his or her farm. Where do you spread manure or fertilizer? In which field? In what season? You know, where do your where do your livestock graze? Right? Um, where? How do you manage manure? Right? Where do you milk? All that sort of stuff. And they will sit down. They will put together with that farmer what's called a whole farm plan, which is a way to change their operations in a way that's protective of quality of water quality. That could be something simple like, hey, you know, instead of spreading manure in the spring on the field that's near that creek, spread it on the one up the hill, 
Okay. They're going to go in those farm fields and test those fields for nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen, which will tell the farmer what sort of crop yield they're going to get. And if it's higher than it needs to be, then they won't be allowed to spread in those fields. Uh, and maybe they can sell some of those nutrients or not have to buy fertilizer, sell some of the manure off the farm, things like that. Um, the idea there is that an excess of nutrients in the field, right, phosphorus, nitrogen, then get washed off the fields and into the streams, creeks, and rivers. And that is the fuel that algae needs to grow. Right. It's the fuel that sure. causes taste and odor problems in water, right? And New York City has a great reason to clean up water at the source rather than toward the end of the supply chain. Cost. To build a filtration plant for New York City's water supply would be the largest public works project in the history of New York City. You're talking about a facility that would cost about $12 billion, that's billion with a B, to build, and would cost about $250 million a year in electricity and chemicals to operate. You know, we don't want to have to do that. We want to protect the water where it is and deliver it to you free of contaminants, clean, pristine, wholesome, and safe the way it's been since we built the system to start with. So. Do you guys worry about terrorism? Absolutely. One of the interesting things about security, or perhaps one of the frustrating things about security, is part of the way we keep you secure is by not telling you how we do it, um, because, <laughs> because you don't want to give people a playbook. But uh, I'll give you one example. A representative sample of New York City's water supply is run through a very large fish tank that is filled with minnows uh, 24 hours a day, every day of the year. And we have a system that monitors the respiration rate uh, of those fish and how often they burp. And that system allows us to see if those fish are in distress. And if those fish begin to show signs of distress, it could be the very first signs of some sort of contamination we would want to know about, and then we begin to investigate. Canary in a coal mine. Okay. It, is the, it is the canary in the coal mine water supply edition. Um, <laughs> but, but that is just one example, and there are many, many other examples throughout the entire water supply and throughout the city where we either have biological monitoring, technological monitoring, or humans monitoring the water supply in a lot of different ways and a lot of different places to protect it. Um, let's talk about the qualities of water sure. in New York. You know, there's all kinds of myths about bagels are better in New York because of the water, or pizza crust, or yeah. all that. Tell us about the, the chemical composition of, of our water. So it is a little bit of a history lesson. So when they build that Croton system and turn on, of course, it takes care of the problems of filth and fire and disease. But one of the problems it did create is the water from here in the Hudson Valley is what we would call moderately hard. And that means that the, that the water has some calcium and magnesium in it. And that's naturally occurring from the underlying geology of this valley. There's limestone in this valley. And so as the water goes through the ground, it interacts with that geology and it, it puts calcium into the water. The problem with calcium in the city was that it was causing a buildup of scale on pipes, but especially on industrial equipment and on steamships. And this scale was very uh, labor-intensive and costly to get off these machines so they would work properly. So as New York City looked to expand its water supply in the early 1900s, it had a lot of criteria it was looking for, right? It wanted water that was clear, cool, didn't have microorganisms in it, wasn't liable to corrode pipes. But perhaps the most important feature they were looking for was water that was not too hard, water that didn't have a lot of calcium and magnesium in it. So when they go to the Catskills, 
they find some of the softest water in the world because the underlying geology in the Catskills is essentially void of limestone. Um, it's shale, it's schist, it's bedrock. The mountains are, are, are pretty hard landscape features. And they decide to build a water supply there, and then they bring this incredibly soft water into the city. And it is that quality of the water, uh, that softness, uh, that many say is responsible for the great dough products that you get in New York City. As you mentioned, pizza crust, bagels, things like that. Now, I have seen that debated over the years, but, mm-hmm. but you know, by and large, that's, uh, that's my understanding of the role that the softness, but also perhaps the alkalinity, plays in creating those dough products. It's worth mentioning, the very scientifically articulate food writer, Kenji Lopez-Alt, has done a small-scale study on this phenomenon. I won't spoil it here, but we'll link to his blind pizza taste tests in our show notes. And even if we can't be sure that staple foods like pizza and bagels are objectively better because of the exact chemical makeup of the water, there are several solid facts to be glad about. For starters, the water supply generates two and a half times as much power as it uses. One of the great unknowns about New York City's water supply, we talked about how it's all fed by gravity, is we have four hydroelectric generating facilities on our water supply. New York City's water supply generates almost two and a half times the amount of electricity that it uses. So we're, we are sort of like uh, the original green infrastructure, if you want to think of it that way. What do you like about water best? <laughs> what do I like about water? Well, we talked about that idea that you know people can't survive or thrive without it. But I think one of the things that I find most interesting about New York City's water supply is it's sort of the silent service. Right? So you wake up in the morning, you turn the faucet on, and you really never question whether it's going to be there or not. Um, I talk about this from time to time. We turned on the water supply in 1842. Uh, there's not been a day since then that New York City has gone without water through the biggest storms in its history, blackouts, terrorist attacks. I mean, you name a natural or man-made disaster, and there has not been a single day during those that the city has gone without water. That's in part because of the genius design of the system, but it's also because there are a lot of people uh, who are working literally 24 hours a day to make sure that we maintain that perfect batting average, right? And there are uh, more than a thousand employees uh, who are New York City employees that work north of the city doing that work. And, you know, we're only here for a, a short period of time compared to the lifespan of the system. We're only here for 20 to 40 years, you know, depending on how long someone's career is. Um, But during that time when we are the steward of this water supply, it is on us to maintain that perfect batting average 24 hours a day, every single day for our entire career. And we take that really, really seriously. And that's just to say an awful lot of work goes into getting that water to New York City, Mm -hmm. whether it's monitoring the reservoirs to understand where the best water is. If we see overnight that the best water is no longer at the top of the reservoir, but it's at the bottom, there are people who get up at 2.30 in the morning and go operate cranes to move, you know, massive iron gates that are twice as big as you are tall and weigh a heck of a lot more to change the elevation of that draw from the reservoir Mm. to make sure it's sent to the city. There are people who are sitting in front of computer screens and monitoring thousands and thousands and thousands of alarms that could go off for different things around the water supply to make sure that we're 
uh, watching the valve chambers and the dams and the aqueducts and all the things that actually make it work, the mechanical portions of the water supply. There are people who are working in the treatment facilities, making sure that the UV dose is proper and the chlorine dose is proper. So all of this stuff happens um, 24 hours a day, but nobody knows about it because it's the great silent service that has always been there and knock on wood always mm -hmm. will be there so that New York City can survive and thrive. Um, last area of questions that I have sure. for you is, um, do you cook? Do you like to cook? I love to cook, yeah. Um, tell me, are, do you have a greater appreciation for water than your average cook? Or how do you, what do you think about water in the kitchen? Do you think about it at all? I think about it from time to time. You know, I, I well, you tell me, is water more important for cooking or for baking? Water's universally important, period. But yeah. I think that cooking it, it I mean, there are other there are other liquid supplies uh, for baking. You yeah. can use a milk. You right. could use beer. Um, right. uh, whereas you can't make a stock really with milk. Right. You know, and what I love about water is that. Um, Here's what I love about water. Yeah. Uh, it's a flavor extractor. Right, right, right. It pulls flavor yep. out of bones. It, it, yeah. it, it dissolves uh, uh, collagen into gelatin, yep. the cartilage, and yep. uh, pulls connective tissue apart to give us body. Um, it, uh, uh, it's a natural thermometer. It yeah. won't go above 212, so right. you're always cooking things below browning temperatures right. when yeah, you're in yeah, water. Yeah. Great. Uh, and it's a, it's a heat extractor as well. You stop food from cooking if you yeah. put it in cold water. Right. It's this powerful, dense yeah. uh, element. Yeah. Um, so that's what I love about water is so many different facets of its usefulness. You've jogged my memory because this is the time of year when I'll start to think about water and cooking more than perhaps other times of year because... One of the things that I like to do as we get deeper into the fall and into the winter is cook something that we can have for multiple days. So, <laughs> so yes, absolutely. That's very important. People don't realize that. It yeah. is. And so, and so it tends to be the things you cook in a big vat of water that are most important for that. And our favorite at home is, is homemade chicken soup and getting, uh, you know, we're lucky to live uh, amidst a lot of local farms and we can get very good whole chickens and put it in water, cook it with parsnips and carrots and celery and all the other things you want to have in a, in, a, in a good stock. And the thing I always think about with the water is not only obviously making sure it's there, but it's always making sure I have enough of it. So you don't you don't want to boil off so much that right. then, oh, man, I didn't make as much as I wanted to. Now I only have three days worth instead <laughs> of five days worth. And that's a real pain in the rear end. So, you know, we're getting into the season where I, I think I cook more with water during this time of year than I would during yeah. the summer and maybe the spring. Interesting. Why didn't I tell this water expert that when you cook too much water out of your stock, just add what you cooked out of it, water. When we come back, Jean-Georges wants to cook his Tom Young Kung soup. Main ingredient, New York City water, straight from the tap. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Okay, so we were in the Jean-Georges kitchen. It's one of the most beautiful kitchens in New York City, um, and they're for the world. We have before us a little um, a pan of shrimp, cilantro, two Thai chilies, some beautifully cut limes, uh, a variety of mushrooms, and we have fish sauce and lime leaves. That's it. So okay. that's, that's actually the, the, the lime leaves, the fish sauce is really our seasoning. Uh huh. This is the salt, mm-hmm. this is the sourness. The salt is fish sauce. Fish sauce, that's right. Acid is the lime. That's right. Aromats are the lemongrass. Oh, lemongrass. Lime leaf, lemongrass. Okay, let me write I mean, if you smell this, it's like, mm. just like. Ah, oh, it's so fragrant, so lemony, so fresh. You've got to realize that Jean-Georges comes alive when he's cooking. He cracked the lemongrass in half and holds it to his nose, closes his eyes, inhales, and when he opens his eyes, they are twinkling as he puts the lemongrass to your nose. It makes him so happy. So, okay. New York Times. Okay, we've got a pitcher of water going into a gorgeous um, saucier, copper saucier. Got about, what, two cups there? Three cups, somehow. Three cups. It's about a, a cup of uh, uh, some lime leaf in there. Right away. Right away. This is the infusion. That's so lime leaf. Infusion. So about four or five lime leaves go in there. They're sort Let's of double-sided lime leaves. You throw on all of them in there. You know in Thailand when you use a soup, mm-hmm. they leave everything in there. Mm-hmm. They leave uh, the lime leaf. We cannot. We can actually can. You cannot eat it. The lemongrass is very hard. Mm-hmm. 
but you have to pick it on it. Mm-hmm. That's why they do their soup and their stew. Right. They already leave the lemongrass, they leave everything in their hole, mm-hmm. and it's for you to uh, pick it out. Mm-hmm. You know. All right, so you're going to smash that. So this, I'm going to cut them in uh, five, six inch pieces. And what's important is to, uh, I take the back of my knife, I smash it. He's cut a long lemongrass stalk into four-inch pieces and is whacking them along their length with the back of his knife to help them release their flavor into the water. In the same way that he crushes with his fingers the lime leaves. I'm going to cover it up so it goes a little faster. Okay. We've got it on a graduated flat top so it gets very hot toward the center there. That's right. And we're going to let this uh, boil and infuse probably for six to eight minutes. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, I'm gonna some mushroom have to be clean, cut in pieces. You can almost do this while the water. You know, you can always you could prep this. You could start the water while yeah. your while your water is yeah. boiling. It's yeah. that fast. I mean, you can do this ahead of time and then just push your shrimp on your mushroom last minute or season last minute. So can you you could pull that? You could infuse it for ten minutes, pull it off the heat, and then yeah. when you're ready to go, just bring it back up to heat. Yeah. The chili, I'm just gonna keep it together, but I'm gonna cut it so it releases a flavor. Uh huh. I'm adding the chili as well in there. Okay, so stem on, split it's open. It's going to be hard for with two. Huh? Yeah. Level, level so you, six. You don't slice them? Half. You don't slice them? No, no. I'll leave them when I get home, mm. just to infuse. Okay. And then cilantro. Uh, cilantro is another one. Now, cilantro is interesting. You told me you're one of those people who tastes soap when you... The first time, you know, knowing only parsley, rosemary, thyme, and basil, I arrived in Thailand. First time I tasted the cilantro, it was like... God, it's, it's like soap. It's very soapy, you know. In the, yeah. In the, in the so this we're gonna chop it, but really, not fine. Not fine. You're leaving the stems in there, and yeah. I'll just wash it in big and chunks. That's, that's gonna go uh, the last minute in the in the last minute as garnish. Yeah. So it's just gonna wilt and melt right. in there. You have a lime. You have a fish sauce. And I love how you cut the lime so there's no none of that core in there. So you get all the juice from the lime. Absolutely. So it's fairly, it's almost ready. You mm-hmm. just have to wait for the infusion and then right. everything goes in there. Yeah. And then the seasoning. Now you're very big on acidity. I got acidity in my palate from my mom. Right. We, all our salads, you know, we're always vinegary. Mm-hmm. You know, not too much lemon because we don't use, it doesn't grow in us, but. More vinegar. Mostly vinegar. Yeah. You know. Yeah, already smells good. It does. It hardly smells like a Thai kitchen in here. When it boils, I just remove the, the cover, let it infuse, and this all right. is all going to cook in two seconds. So how do you, how do you te- how do you teach someone? How would you teach someone at home to use acidity? How how sh- how far should they take it? How do, how do you know? Because they can't be here with you saying you could say this is now it's on the money or more acidity. It's, it's, I think cooking is personal, so some people are put more acidity than others, but. I know. I mean, look at it. Sometimes people put a lemon on the side of a dish, start eating it, mm-hmm. and then you squeeze a little more, squeeze mm-hmm. a little more. Your palate gets, I know, after a couple of bites, you get you want more. You want more of yeah, that you acidity. More, exactly. You want more of that heat. You want more of that, uh, you know, right. fragrance, flavor. If, if after two bites is boring, put, them, put more lemon juice. <laughs> or lime juice. Or vinegar. So, so what's the order going to be? We've now got um, a, a pan of water simmering with lime leaves, chili peppers. Two, three minutes. And uh, lemongrass. Then the order is going to be? The order is going to be mushroom. Which are going to re- release their own flavor. 
one flavor. So that's going to infuse another, bring another dimension to the soup. That brings good umami flavors to it. That's right. Of it. Then I'm going to season it, nampla, lime juice. Last minute the shrimp because they're going to push very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then the coriander, the cilantro. Done. It's too easy. Too, yeah, I know. I know. It's, but you need good water. <laughs> On New York has, a, has the finest water. Yeah, we were talking about that. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, I learned that it came, uh, the New York water came, they say it's the best in the country, but because it comes from 175 lakes, mm -hmm. upstate New York. Some are natural, some are, you know, handmade, man-made, and then it's, uh, it goes via Dukes all the way to the city, and then, mm -hmm. of course, it's treated, but it's, um, it's all from lakes. So it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing. Some other areas, you know, they have to use, take the salt, take the seawater, take the right. salt out of the water. Right. Some other areas they have to collect from rains. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a lot of rainwater too, but from lakes. Mm -hmm. So here we are. I'm adding my mushrooms. It's about okay. eight minutes now. Mm -hmm. Infusion. And you can see the water turns a little um, greenish. Yeah, it is discoloring. And the leaves are turning a little brown. Yep. Lime leaves are turning I'm adding uh, mushroom. Lime juice. Fish sauce. I'm not going to put it all because I want to test it to make sure. Right. Make sure it's good. And the most important is not to uh, to reduce this. Why, why is that? You know, it gets very salty with the fish sauce. Yeah. It's, but it's very sharp with lime. Yeah, yeah. And you added the rest of the, you held back on the fish sauce. Put everything in there. And then put the rest in there. Now the shrimp's going in. Yeah, this one I'm going to a nice, nice bouillon, nice broth. Now, why don't you want it on the center of that? I clean my shrimp. You know, when I had it the first they're, time, they're, there was a, a vein, and vein yeah. a shell, head-on, everything, So, which means nice too, but uh, right. it's a little more work for a soup. I'm adding my shrimp. Beautiful. So I noticed that you, um, it's, it really has not reached a hard boil. Just a no, gentle sure. simmer. Yeah, gentle. I mean, when you infuse it, you have, to, you have to bring it to a boil, like a tea, and then mm. you remove it. And let it, let it simmer a little bit. I know I want my shrimp to be cooked, but not too, uh, mm -hmm. you know, on. And beautiful cilantro. cilantro. Yeah, That's going to bring I that green it. flavor to it. Mm -hmm. Glasses, cilantro, cilantro is all going into the pot. Yeah. You can see the shrimp are almost done, almost cooked. So you want that cilantro to infuse a little too, you don't use it as a garnish at the end. No, 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 it has to be, has to be wilted in there. I'll show you the way I had it in the street the first time, 1980. You see the colors changed, you see the flavors changed. With water. Thai soup. <laughs> it's refreshing, so healthy, yeah, it's clean. Good. So here I have some uh, jasmine rice, which is probably yeah. the best with it. Beautiful. So they often eat, eat rice with soup. They'll take a, yeah, you a bite to. of soup and then a bite of rice or sure you have to eat it's usually the you put the rice in a in a, a bowl and then you when you eat it you cover on the, the fragrance of the, the rice is really jasmine is really awesome oh i love it yeah nothing, my favorite nothing, nothing like it it's just come back to the simmer you can see that the shrimp are done they're done that's it you know what's nice when you eat it you uh you can, you know, suck on the lemongrass a little bit. I was working on some recipes with an Indian chef, Suvir Saran, who likes to leave inedible aromatics in his curry, like cloves and cardamom pods, as a reminder for us to eat carefully and thoughtfully. 
And sometimes you just want to bite into a little flavor bomb like that. Buffalo. Yeah, exactly. Because you put that chili. Get a chili in there. It's Absolutely. Beautiful. Gorgeous. Now we have to eat it, don't we? We've got to eat it. Well, we good. Beautiful. So the way to, the way to eat it is really to uh, make a little rice. Mm -hmm. the mushroom. So you put some more rice in a spoon, pick up some soup. Good. Thailand as his best, as his best. <laughs> wow. It's beautiful, beautiful. Yes. Thank you, Jean-Georges. And you see the heat when you have a couple of spoons. All right. All right. Let's get some spoons I and can, taste. Yeah. Let's do it. So we've seen where our water comes from, explored some of the engineering feats that get water from the mountains of New York to New York City, and looked at one phenomenal use for water in the kitchen with Jean-Georges. Next time you turn on that faucet to fill a pot, take a few moments to consider where it came from, what it can do, and how lucky we are to have it. Special thanks to our guests, Adam Bosch and Sarah Kelsey. If you enjoyed hearing us chat from within the old Croton Aqueduct, go check out one of Sarah's tours and go see it and enjoy it yourself. You won't regret it. Thanks also to Chef Jean-Georges Vangerichten. His brand new memoir, which he and I co-wrote, is out now and it's called JGV, A Life in 12 Recipes. Lastly, my new book is out now too. It's also called From Scratch, but it's all about cooking and 10 meals that can teach us all we need to know in the kitchen. We'll have a link to it and all the other links in the show notes and on my site, ruleman.com. From Scratch, the podcast, is produced by Jonathan Dressler. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins. All the music on From Scratch is by Ryan Scott, off his album, A Freak Grows in Brooklyn. From Scratch is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Now tomorrow is here, and the path has been cleared. Got a smile on my face, was a man is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com 
Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.